Hello everyone, DJ here. I warn you, this is a long one. Be prepared. In fact, you might want to take this in pieces. Alright, let's dive in. You're almost there. You've finally been medically retired. You're receiving VA compensation. You're getting military retirement from your branch of service. And you're getting uh, an offset on that military retirement as a result of of your VA compensation. So you're all done, right? You can start to relax. You can go play golf or whatever it is you do when you have free time. Or is there one more step to take? Well, for some people, there's one more step to take. Well, what is that last step, you might ask? Well, if, uh, here we go, get ready to go down the rabbit hole. If any of your disabilities are a result of direct combat, hazardous duty, or preparing for combat, like field training exercises, then you might be eligible for another type of pay called combat-related special compensation. That sounds like something you mentioned last week, doesn't it, DJ? You might say. CRSC, Combat-Related Special Compensation. That sounds a lot like CRDP, Concurrent Retired and Disability Pay, which you discussed last week. Aren't they the same thing? you also might ask. Well, again, to put it simply, no. These sound very similar on their face, and even professionals in the field can get them mixed up. So, hopefully that's why you came here, so you can find out the truth. Don't let similar acronyms think make you think that they are the same thing. Combat-related special compensation is designed to make up for some or all of that VA offset you have in your military retirement. What's that offset, you might wonder? Well, look at your retired account statement, and you'll see. Let's say you're getting $1,000 a month from the military in retirement, and you're getting 500 from the VA. Well, you're not bringing home $1,500. You're bringing home 500 from the VA and 500 from the military you have an offset because of the VA compensation. So, if you have combat-related disabilities, you can possibly make up for some of that. While this does sound very similar to what I discussed last week, concurrent retirement and disability pay, they are actually quite different. The eligibility requirements are radically different, and it just goes on from there. So, for starters, the eligibility, like I said, is quite different. For example, you do not have to have reached your retired pay eligibility date, which for reservists is normally age 60, in order to receive this compensation. It can be received now. Let's look at the list of eligibility requirements just for an intro. And I'm going to run through these real quick. They're a direct quote, well, mostly direct from the dfast.mil website, so you can verify what I'm about to say. To qualify, and I'm just going to read it right off the screen here, to qualify for CRSC, you must be eligible for and or receiving military retired pay, disability retirement. 
be rated at least 10% by the Department of Veterans Affairs. Have a VA offset from your retired pay. And file a CRSC application with your branch of service. So, you may have noticed a couple of differences between CRDP, which I discussed last week, and CRSC now. Only four requirements, first of all. That sounds pretty simple. And by the way, if you're wondering what I mean with CRDP, please check last week's episode. I don't want to rehash old territory here because we've got certainly enough to cover today. So like I said, only four requirements. But we mentioned combat-related earlier, so let's go into a little bit of what that is. Again, I'm going to quote directly from the DFAS.mil website, since they're the ones that pay this. Disabilities that may be considered combat-related include injuries incurred as a direct result of armed conflict, hazardous duty, an instrumentality of war, and simulated war. Now, we're getting into some murky territory here. We're talking about terminology that a lot of us don't understand when we first hear it. So let's dig a little deeper into those terms and figure out what they mean. And for those of you watching on video, please excuse while I read directly from the screen in front of me rather than paying attention to you on the camera. So the first term is armed conflict. And I've got a layman's version of the definition here I've also posted in the references directly from the CRSC application their definitions of these terms so you can compare and contrast. So, armed conflict. Direct combat, such as injury from an explosive, uh, an improvised explosive device or IED or a firefight or the results of combat, such as uh, lung damage from inhaling smoke from a burning vehicle, uh, which caught fire during or after an engagement, something like that. Armed conflict can also result, or, or something can be considered a result of armed conflict, again, for reasons such as environmental conditions uh, in a combat theater. However, injuries resulting while in theater, such as uh, injuries during physical training while overseas, is not necessarily enough to qualify for CRSC there has to be a documented link between the combat environment and your injury. So let's move on to the next term. Hazardous duty. This one's pretty simple, actually. Engaging in duties which are naturally considered highly dangerous, such as you know, some things we know, such as explosive ordnance disposal, flight, or paratrooper operations. Going to pause here for a moment. All right, I am back. I'm actually, on the recording, it looks like I may not have been gone at all, but I'll edit out all of the, uh, the interruption. Had a difficulty with my microphone here. The pop guard fell off, so I had to replace it. All right, so we were on hazardous duty. The definition of that was something with which most of us are familiar. People who engage in highly dangerous activities such as explosive ordnance disposal, uh, flight, or being a paratrooper. 
Well, that's not all of them, of course. That's just an example. So if you're injured as a result of performing duties such as that, that can be considered, in effect, combat-related. Moving on to the next term, the instrumentality of war. This is basically military equipment. Uh, consider this things like vehicles, vessels, other devices designed primarily for use in military service. So, a chem light, maybe, maybe not. Don't eat them. They're not crayons. But they're Marines out there. Don't eat the crayons. Even those that glow. Uh, again, the injury has to be directly documented to have a link between your injury and the vehicle being used for its intended purpose. And when I say vehicle, I, of course, mean all instruments of war. Uh, if you are, are conducting physical training and you happen to run into a Humvee and crack a rib on one of the armor plates, that is probably not going to be considered combat-related. Simple accidents are not going to qualify for this. Moving on. So, the next term we have is simulated war. This is field training exercises, war games, things of that nature. Anything in which simulated combat is taking place. Just think of the National Training Center. That's an excellent example. So injuries that incur while you're conducting operations at NTC you know, could very likely be considered combat-related. Even though it's not an actual war, it's simulated war. You're preparing for combat. So it's considered the same thing by the Department of Defense. Again, there has to be a documented link between the simulated combat and your injury. Just twisting an ankle during PT won't qualify. So now that we know what these com combat-related causes are, let's look a bit at, at the rest. Hopefully that did help with your understanding. I mean, it, it does sound a little constraining on its face, but there's actually a lot of room to work with here. Remember that everything has to be documented. Your word that disability is related to these conditions won't be enough. You've got to have some proof. And I'll post a link to combat-related conditions in the references, like I mentioned earlier. Look for Appendix A of Department of Defense Form 2860-2860. All right, so now we have a, a basic understanding of the conditions under which your disability occurs and an idea of the basic qualifications, such as VA offset, medical disability, or simple retired pay having a VA offset, and you've got some sort of combat-related disability. Well, what do you do now? Well, this is something for which you have to apply, so let's talk about applying. Unlike comp, ah, almost said combat. Unlike concurrent retired disability pay, or CRDP, this is not something that typically happens automatically. In fact, it doesn't happen automatically at all. You do have to apply for it. So be sure that you meet all of those qualifications I mentioned earlier, and then uh, apply for CRSC. If you don't meet one of those conditions, even if your injuries are combat-related, you're going to be rejected. So do everything in the right order. For example, excuse me, for example, if you've been medically retired, apply for your military pension. 
you've got to have that pension being offset by VA before you can be considered eligible for CRSC. If you jump right into the CRSC application, which I have seen in the past, it's going to be rejected no matter how good your documentation happens to be. You've got to have that offset first. So again, let's jump into this and talk about application. The first part of the application is DD form, Department of Defense form 2860, claim for combat-related special compensation, or CRSC. This is actually the easiest part of the whole shebang, even though it can be frustrating on its own. It actually can be quite a bear, but trust me, this is the easy part. I've spent over two hours with retirees on this, mostly because they were not properly prepared. It's a lot easier if your records have been pre-sorted and the parts that need to be referenced are easily accessible. So keep that in mind. We'll actually go through some of that and then you get a better idea of how you can prepare yourself for this application. Most of the time I mentioned in preparing this application was actually spent going through hundreds of documents trying to find the right things. The last one of these that I prepared seemingly took no time at all because the retiree had actually prepared everything in advance. When I said I need this, that, and the other, he just pulled it right out. It was no problem. So a good tip. You'll have everything pre-sorted. And as you go, you'll see this has actually been made quite simple if you take the time to prepare. So some other resources out there on the Magical Interwebs have already been written. So I'm actually going to quote from these rather than try to prepare them all on my own. It's already there. Why not make use of it? So let's talk about the list of documents that you need to go with this application. I'm not going to talk about the actual application so much. It's fairly self-explanatory, uh, and I'm, I'll probably save uh, the actual preparation of that document for a, a different episode. Right now, I just want to do an intro. So anyway, documents to accompany this application should include relevant supporting documents uh, such as medical records. Uh, time and again, these claims are lacking in sufficient documentation linking them to these combat-related conditions. If you use the right documents, it's really easy. So some of the essential documents, DD-214s and DD-215s, just be safe and Put them all in there. No duplicates. You know, just just one of each is fine. But put them all in there. And you might have to go to the National Archives, National Personnel Records Center, or if you're a National Guard, you might want to go to your archive records manager in your state to try to get these documents. But it's a good idea to do that in advance. All Department of Veterans Affairs rating decisions are the next document you want. VA physicians reports, medical records, and rating decisions are all critical in the CRSC application. Include VA letters, actual ratings, and if you have it, the VA code sheets, because this is going to be reviewed by, well, it's going to be, it's going to be very similar to what I mentioned earlier with Army doctors versus VA. You know, if you've got the if you've got the medical records already prepared and the VA has already done the evaluations, 
then again, the military is going to just look at the cause of the condition and whether it would inhibit you from doing your military duty. Highly recommended documents are other medical records that you may have, say from civilian doctors and the like. Uh, award certificates such as for Purple Hearts indicating a combat-related cause of your condition. Uh, military medical treatment records are a great idea. Military orders putting you in combat zones or directing you to go to the National Training Center or anything that supports your claim of that nature. And when I say military orders, of course, I'm not talking about every promotion order and every transfer order you've ever had, just the stuff that pertains to your conditions, please. This takes long enough without adding a bunch of fluff that might just cause people to drag their feet more because it's so scary to look at these giant packets. So what else should you include? I'm not going to read the whole list of suggested documents. You can actually look at my article version of this and see the whole list. And I've also included the link to Human Resources Command where you can get other information. But some other suggested documents would be Retirement physicals from the military, the physical evaluation board, proceedings, sick slips where you go to see doctors about these conditions, uh, officer record briefs, enlisted record briefs, things like that. Now, with all of these things, do not include originals. Only give copies to the person who's helping you prepare this packet and keep a copy of all of this for yourself as well. So as you can see, this is a pretty long list, and it really lends a lot of weight to the credo that we've all heard of keep everything the military gives you, because you never know when it might become useful. And once you've finished putting this application together, like I said, make a copy of everything, and I mean everything. I'm going to include addresses where you can send those packets in the descriptions of uh, the video and the podcast, and in the article version of this, it'll be part of the article. Sadly, there's no electronic way to send these packets. It's hard copy only. In one or two faces, there places, there's an electronic fax, but that's the closest thing you can get to electronic submission. So. Sadly, it's still the old paper way for a lot of this. Be sure to do that. And if I haven't already mentioned it, these packets do not go to the VA. They go to your branch of service. This is not a VA decision. This is a determination made by your branch of service. So send it to the right place. Now, what if you have already sent it once and you didn't like the decision, you want a reconsideration? Well, you can actually apply to have your packet reconsidered. Uh, if you're going to do this specifically for new disabilities, you can request consideration through your branch of service. Again, I'm going to include in the show description where you can go based on branch of service for a reconsideration. I'm not going to talk about that here. And as with so many things in the retirement world, I do not recommend trying to do this yourself. As I've mentioned with a lot of other retirement facts, there are countless cases of something that seems easy being also easy to mess up. So I recommend that you get the assistance of a retirement services officer, 
It's very much like doing taxes, uh, or rather it's not like doing taxes, which can be overwhelming, but this can still be quite a bear. So if you need assistance with the application, contact a retirement services officer. Uh, at worst case, you can go to your branch of service personnel headquarters and get help there, but it would, in my opinion, it would be a lot better to get assistance from someone a lot closer to you and someone who has relevant experience in this area. Now, <clears throat> keep in mind, as with so many things military, the CRSC determination is not going to be fast. I have seen it take a minimum of six months up to three years, but don't let that discourage you. You can get back pay to the date of application for up to six years, whichever is less. And again, your Army RSO or RSO period, Retirement Service Officer, should be able to track the status of this, at least for those on the Army side. They should be able to track the status of your packet through the Soldier Management System, or SMS. Uh, and that's, uh, for those of you who might not know what that is, you RSOs out there, you can find the SMS website at www.hrcapps.army.mil slash IWS, India Whiskey Sierra. All right. We've already gone through a lot, and I'm not done yet. So what other considerations should you keep in mind? Information, planning, timing, all of these are critical when we're talking combat-related special compensation. I have seen already three people in the last year who have been bitten very hard by a lack of knowledge, and it has proven quite detrimental to them. I know that there are many more people like these three out there. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if there is a future class action lawsuit in the works nationwide, because if I see this many in my region in such a short amount of time, how many are there nationwide? So here's a few examples, or one example of what I mean. As a worst case example, let me tell you about this one guy. He was medically retired from regular Army, and in his situation, he was medically retired, receiving VA compensation, and he was receiving retired pay from the military. There was an offset, of course. A problem, or there should have been an offset. The problem was there wasn't. He was getting both military retirement and VA compensation at the same time. For some reason, the VA and DFAS computers did not sync up as they normally do, and the offset did not begin for almost two years. So what happened? Can you see it? I mean, you've, been, you've been coming to this channel for a while now, most likely, so you know what happens when there are financial hiccups. There's going to be a debt. So, in, in this case, he got a nasty gram from DFAS saying that he owed over $70,000 in overpayments. So, this was quite a shock. <clears throat> he also uh, had not applied for combat-related special compensation, so there was no way to take care of that debt easily. He's got a lot of work to do. This case is still going on, so you know, that might change in the future. 
but as you can see from this poor fellow, it is imperative to be aware of how your military pay and VA pay are supposed to work. If you don't have an offset to your military pay as a result of VA compensation, then contact an RSO right away and have them investigate for you. And if you think you're eligible for CRSC, apply for it right away. Don't wait. Now let's calm down a little. Let's think of something good. What if you are eligible for both CRSC and CRDP? So if you can get combat-related special compensation, or you can get concurrent retired and disability pay, what now? Well, keep in mind, you can only have one of those. For reservists, being able to get both of these means you've reached your retired pay eligibility date, and you have a VA rating of at least 50%. DFAS is going to send you a letter in the mail asking you which one of these two benefits you want to receive. And you have to choose this. Choose whichever one is most beneficial to you. But keep in mind, CRDP is taxable. CRSC is not. If the numbers are the same, it's a simple decision. If they're not the same, you might have to do a little math to figure out which is best for you. Your situation, of course, is going to be unique to you, so I can't give you any real examples here. We'll just say it's a decision you have to make. <clears throat> now, last week when I was talking about concurrent, concurrent receipt, uh, I said I was going to go into a comparison of CRSC and CRDP. Well, since I've already been going on for you know, 25 minutes, and in fact, looking at the notes here, uh, the article I wrote on this topic was already at the 10-page mark. I think I'm going to cut this a little bit short as far as the comparison, but I am going to post a chart in the references section and on my website comparing these two. It was real easy. I found it on the DFAS website, so I just copied and formatted it. And if it doesn't answer all of the questions that you have, feel free to contact me. Excuse me again. All right. Well, if you have questions, of course, drop them in the comments section or shoot me an email at dj at rcretirement.com. Of course, I'll answer all the questions you send. Who knows, your question might even spark another episode for me to talk about a new topic. <clears throat> Pardon me for all the throat clearing. All right, so now the happy stuff, the end of episode comments here. If you believe this episode would be useful to someone else, then please share a link to this video or this podcast episode so that other people can learn from it. Also, please share the, and spread the word of this website and this YouTube channel. At the moment, the site loads pretty slowly. Please forgive the slow loading times. I am actually working on a site revamp, which will remedy those, but that's still got some working time before I get better load times, so please forgive me there. Just uh, I ask your patience.
For those of you listening to this in podcast form, I ask that you subscribe to this podcast feed in iTunes. Also, if you don't mind, write reviews about this podcast, as this helps spread the word about the, the podcast itself and encourages other people to subscribe to it and benefit from the knowledge you can provide. Anything you can do to increase this audience and increase the awareness of military retirement benefits and the like uh, would be greatly appreciated.